There is no such thing as work-life balance. Everything worth fighting for unbalances your life. That's a quote from Elaine D. Botten. Welcome to the Recharge Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Mitchell Schwent. The mission of this podcast is to provide you the tools, tactics, strategies, and resources to recharge your life. The episodes are geared to make an impact on your life in 15 minutes or less, along with more in-depth special episodes interviewing experts across numerous disciplines. This show will guide you through getting the most from your body and mind to generate the maximum performance you want in your life. Let's jump into today's episode. Thanks for coming along this journey of transformation, and I hope you enjoyed the last two episodes as we've delved into issues regarding wellness, nutrition, coaching, longevity, lifestyle. And as we continue to push this boundary, I'm very pleased to announce today's guest, Dr. Sarai Stancic. She has an amazing story, and you may have already heard of her. She's been on Forks Over Knives, which I absolutely love. If you haven't seen the movie, definitely check it out. But Dr. Stancic has a unique story. As physicians and healers, we are not immune to illness and disease, and it uh, is humbling as a healthcare provider to be brought to your knees due to a critical illness. I know this firsthand from several serious accidents and a horrible case of meningitis I had um, shortly after uh, starting my first job as an emergency physician attending at an uh, urban hospital. So I know what it's like to be on the other side of the bed, and Dr. Stancic shares her story of discovery and exploration and the powerful message of food as medicine. Any of you who have taken some of my uh, cooking uh, lectures and plant-based nutrition courses, you know where I stand on this issue and the ability of our bodies to heal themselves along with the nutritions and the supplements, proper eating and lifestyle choices really makes all the difference in our health and longevity. And so I'm very pleased to bring on Dr. Stancic and let's get into her story. I've got a very interesting guest on today, Dr. Sarai Stancic. Welcome. Thank you, Mitchell. It's a pleasure to be here today. And so I came across some information on the Forks Over Knives site, and I saw your story there, and it really sort of captivated me. And I just I wonder if you could just uh, dive a little bit into uh, your story and your your health and your transformation. Sure. So um, back in it was October 1995. I was really at what I thought my best. Um, I was a third year medical resident. Just had just been asked to be chief resident the following year. Um, a month prior to that, I had just met my future husband, so I was really uh, living the perfect life. And, and it came this one uh, evening, it was October 11th, 1995. It was an extremely busy uh, call for me. I was just running around from the ICU to the emergency room, and I, I remember feeling this intense uh, fatigue that I had never experienced previously. Finally, around 2 o'clock in the morning, I, I made it to my call room, and I just, you know, instantaneously... Uh, fell asleep. Um, within, you know, an hour or so, I was paged again. And uh, at that time, when I when I went up to, to get up, I couldn't feel my legs. And it, so it was, wow. you know, acute presentation um, of multiple sclerosis. And I, certainly uh, thereafter, I had an MRI and my, my brain and spinal cord. There were multiple, uh, you know, multiple uh, lesions in, in, in both brain and spinal cord. So life changed really dramatically for me, uh, acutely you know overnight yeah definitely what uh, do you remember what sort of went through your mind i mean obviously as a as a <laughs> medical resident and physician you probably had a, a variety of scary thoughts that uh, went through your mind about what this could be when you right, were... well, you, know, you know physicians are, are the worst patients 
Definitely. So, of course, you know, I think it was pretty obvious to anyone, uh, you know, the mid-20s, um, acute neurological uh, uh, changes, you know, it's multiple sclerosis unless proven other otherwise. But in my head, you know, I was trying, well, I must have worked out too much or it was it was the heels that I was wearing the day before. You know, you're, you're pretty much in denial. And it, it wasn't really until um, I heard the words. And it's interesting, you know, the way I, I learned the diagnosis um uh, was really unfortunate. I had sat through uh, like two or th- two hours of, of an MRI machine, which was was traumatic um, to say the least. And as I'm being wheeled out, the, the radiology attending um, screams out to a, a couple of medical students and residents says says to them, "Get get the whole team over here. Look at these wonderful oh, images. This, this is classic multiple sclerosis." And that's the way I learned it. Wow. That's, yeah. that's horrible. Yeah. And so the, the night that it happened, did you go Did you go down to the ER as a patient or did you just weather through the call and, and suck it up like we oh, often do? No, no. I mean, when I, I, I couldn't really move. So okay. I was immediately transferred over to, um, I, uh, to the to tertiary care center um, at my medical school in, in New York, New Jersey, New Jersey Medical School. So I was actually sent over um, immediately. Wow. And so then what happened after that? So after that, I was admitted. I was given, you know, five days of, of IV solumendrol. Um, and, you know, I think that, that whole, uh, lots of testing was completed, and obviously the diagnosis was made. And the plan was that I was going to start um, beta interferon. That was the, the drug of choice at the time in 1995. And so I began that uh, daily interferon shots. Uh, and I don't know how familiar you are with interferon, but it's a pretty horrific drug. Right. Um, you know, so every morning, every evening, I would inject myself, and then two o'clock in the morning, I would wake up with shaking chills, a flu-like illness. Um, certainly, neuropsychiatric side effects were were problematic. Depression, um, injection site reactions, and I did that for some time. Um, and again, you know, this is a preventative measure, and I and I just really spiraled. And it would, and I ended up, you know, and there were medications that I was taking to manage the neuropathy and the pain that I had in my lower extremities, Neurontin, amitriptyline, um, medications to address my hypertonic bladder. Um, so before I knew it, Mitchell, I had, you know, I was on a handful of drugs and, and really living a life severely compromised. My quality of life was really not... Um, what I wanted it to be in my early 30s. Uh, and so I searched, you know, I searched for another way to, to manage this chronic illness. And um, it was, I went, I, I think I've seen just about every neurologist in the tri-state area looking for, for a way. And it wasn't until um, I came across this sort of really silly, unscientific um, study in like a throwaway medical journal about um, multiple sclerosis and blueberries. And it was, you know, that's what caught my eye. Um, it was a, a study looking at MS, and, um, and it was it was like maybe 60 patients. This is not a, a, a statistically significant finding. Or, or And when I read the article, it was sort of, uh, you know, I didn't think much of it. But what it did, and the article was about, you know, patients with multiple sclerosis, way to diet rich in blueberries, were subjectively less symptomatic. And, and I, you know, I thought that was interesting, and I, and I started to think a little bit more about this. And, and what the what this article did was sort of, you know, turn on that light. Is there 
something about how we eat that promotes chronic illness, the development of chronic illness. And so um, I became very interested in nutrition and not just nutrition, but lifestyle, you know, how we, how we eat, how we move, how we manage our stress. Does this play a significant role in the development of chronic illness? And, and of course, my, my search began because of my personal story, but it extended beyond obviously just autoimmune disease and multiple sclerosis, but also the common causes of death in this country, cardiovascular disease and and stroke and diabetes, um, how could we alter that path um, in, in managing patients? And, you know, I, so I started to incorporate, uh, and, you know, I started to learn more and more about this stuff. I mean, there was, a, there was an interesting paper that was written back in 1952 wow. by Roy Swank in the New England Journal of Medicine about, um, you know, nutrition and, and, the, and the prevalence of multiple sclerosis. So this wasn't anything new. It was just something that I had never, I mean, I don't, I don't remember ever hearing much about nutrition during medical school. It wasn't a topic that we spent a lot of time on. We spent a lot of time on uh, pharmaceuticals and and um, you know procedures managing chronic illness, but no one really talked about uh, prevention and what role nutrition could play. So it was really my own um, self education and, and just just this real interest in learning more more and more about um, the role it could play. And what I found interestingly was that there's really a, there's ample evidence in the scientific literature to support. Uh, the prevention of chronic illness and even the amelioration of chronic illness um, by changing our diets. And, uh, you know, studies like the Diabetes Prevention Program where they took pre-diabetic patients and randomized them to either receive metformin, which is, of course, what we typically and conventionally use in that setting, versus lifestyle intervention. And, 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 and this was a randomized control placebo study. Um, and when you look at these patients four or five years out, you, you see that, yes, metformin was wonderful. It reduced the likelihood of developing mm-hmm. diabetes by 30%, but, you know, it, lifestyle intervention was twice as effective, 60%. But we don't talk about that as clinicians. Right. So we, we need to shift our approach and, and, and talk to patients about the importance of the choices and the behaviors that they adopt in, in regards to the, their, their clinical health outcomes. I mean, we, we, we play a role in, 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 in this, and it's significant. I totally agree. I think if I think back to my medical school experience, we had maybe an optional couple hours of nutrition lectures that we could attend, and, and they were poorly delivered and probably right. not, not a lot of value. And so um, definitely there's a huge role and, and gap, I think, also because physicians are so busy in finding the time in a traditional medical model to educate patients it's difficult i i agree i agree but but i think it there i think there's a there's a sense there's a i'm beginning to see a shift that that physicians are becoming more and more aware of this it's interesting you know um the president-elect of the american college of cardiology kim williams he wrote an, an editorial about this very topic where he he found in 2003 his blood cholesterol was elevated and he changed his diet um, he's now a, a vegan, and he corrected his hypercholesterolemic state simply by, by changing his diet. And that was interesting because we have a, a very you know, pr- um, prominent uh, physician, uh, again, leading, uh, with elected for, uh, 
for the American College of Cardiology speaking uh, this way, which I think is very important and hopefully will set the tone moving forward. Yeah, definitely a huge shift needs to occur. Uh, can we just jump back a little bit? So you were going through all these treatments and administering interferon to yourself at home, which is a, a huge undertaking. I can't imagine a, a you know a non-medically trained person doing that. How long did it take you to sort of get stabilized with your, your MS and then finish your residency and, and get out into practice? How long did that, that period take? Well, I mean, I was able to finish. Um, at that point, I was a third-year medical resident, and I went on to finish my my uh, residency and then complete. A, I, I did a, a subspecialty in infectious diseases um, successfully. I was able to do that, but it was you know um, it w- it was difficult because of you know l- l- the the side effects of the drugs. Right. So certainly. It could have. It was just much more complicated because of of the medications, and on, on average, I would have two to three exacerbations. Okay. I would say uh, per year. So, I mean, I was managing the disease. I was able to to work and and maintain um, my lifestyle. You know, I was. I got married. I, I I even had a child. But again, it was it was it was difficult. And I think I reached a point uh, around two thousand and two where I really felt. Um, that I needed to do something drastic, and it was at that point that I think just a, a lot of things came together for me. That that article, um, learning more about Swank's work, and learning more about you know other physicians with with similar um, scientific backgrounds, and and then I decided that I was going to discontinue uh, the medications that I was on because uh, this, the quality of life that I, at the time was was just suboptimal, and I wanted to to attempt to do this by changing my lifestyle. So then I just started to introduce. I started, you know, I started to cut out foods that are uh, less uh, optimal and introduce a diet that was rich in, in vegetation. So primarily, the diet that I talk about and that I that I promote is one consistent with you know whole food plant based diet or a diet rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes, because those are the foods that are rich in, in those nutrients that are that are so important in maintaining health. So I did this over a period of you know years where I, I started to just really improve my 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 diet and, and for and the, and then I started to to uh, do something that I never think thought I could do is start to run. Um, you know for years I walked That's awesome. With a cane or a crutch, and, mm-hmm. and um, I had some significant peripheral neuropathy, and I can tell you there were years where I didn't feel my legs. I mean, I, um, wow. it was it was very difficult. And you know, in 2007, my brother um, ran the Los Angeles Marathon. Uh, he's a pretty avid runner, and sort of inspired me to try. And and um, the first day I I tried to do any running, I think I fell several times and I might have run a block, but mm-hmm. I started to, you know, just little by little continue to add on. And in 2010, uh, I ran a marathon, which was really yeah. a wonderful, wonderful experience. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's, quite a, that's quite a journey. And so when you started to incorporate these uh, dietary changes, lifestyle changes, and, and take yourself off your medications, did you get some pushback from your, your physician, your neurologist? Oh. oh, yes, yes. They were not happy with me at all. Um, you know, I, I had many neurologists say to me, if I, if I discontinued the, uh, the interferon that I, that I would, um, at the age of 40, and I'm way beyond 40 at this point, I would be in a wheelchair, and that, you know, I was making... Uh, a poor uh, decision and then, you know, there would be ramifications to it. And I understood that. I understood that there was risk associated. And I would never, 
um, advise a patient, uh, an MS patient, to discontinue their, their you know, uh, disease-modifying drugs. I think that's mm-hmm. a decision that needs to be made individually with their neurologist and, you know, weigh out the risk-benefit of, of any any decision that you make. But for me, it was the one that I needed to make at the time, and, it, and thus far, thank God, it's worked out well for me. Yeah, definitely. And so, you, you know, you have the, the benefit of being a, a trained physician and interpreting some of the medical literature on, on food or food as medicine. How does the average person sort through what's out there? I mean, I was just looking at a, a running magazine this morning that was talking about uh, touting the benefits of, um, you know, fats and eating cheeseburgers for, for athletes. And so it's very confusing for the general public. It is very confusing. There's, and, and, you know, there's always a, a new um, book out, you know, the wheat belly or the paleo diet. Everyone has a different perspective. And, you know, the science behind a lot, and it's dangerous. And, and there's a lot of celebrity physicians on television promoting this supplement or that supplement or this food item or, you know, gluten-free is, it, it has been, you know, prevalent. Uh, you know, a couple of celebrities go gluten-free and now everyone wants to go gluten-free. And it, and so there's a lot of uh, misconception and, and messaging that's out there. And, and um, it's difficult to comb through it. But what I tell patients is, you know, we need to look at all of these different diets and understand that these are all fads. There's very little science behind it. And what I'm, what I talk about is evidence-based medicine. You know, what does the literature tell us? Um, you know, the, there, and there is literature out there. We, you know, I just talked about the diabetes prevention program, but the POTSDAM study, a large study done uh, by the EPIC investigators in Europe looking at 23,000 Germans. And what these investigators wanted to look at is what, what was the relative risk reduction of chronic illness in patients who did four simple things, four simple behaviors. Um, they didn't smoke. They maintained a healthy weight. They ate a diet rich in vegetation, and they exercised daily. And it wasn't anything extraordinary, you know, a 30-minute walk. And when we looked at those patients over a long period of time, what did they find? In this patient population, patients who abided by those healthy behaviors, there was a 93% reduction in the development of diabetes, 80% 80 reduction in myocardial infarction, and so on and so forth. So, so we see a, a significant reduction in chronic illness when we adopt these behaviors. So that's the science that supports what we're, what I'm trying to promote. And then when you look at the world in, in its entirety, you know, Dan Buettner's mm-hmm. book uh, in, entitled Blue Zones. Blue Zones, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you look at these people. What are these people doing? They're right. doing those very same things. Exactly. They're managing their stress. They're eating a diet rich in vegetation, and they're moving every day. So these are the behaviors. We need to adopt to maintain health and wellness. I agree. I mean, four simple things to reduce the chance of diabetes, heart attack, and death. Did the, the study, did it give an idea what the body weight, you know, was it a, a BMI measure? or what It was they... a BMI, and actually it was very generous. This BMI, uh, BMI less than 30. Really? In the okay. POTSGAM study, yeah. Okay, so... Um, that would be considered, you know, some obesity. That would be considered, yes. That would, well, obesity is defined as a BMI greater than 30, so it would be considered certainly overweight. So BMI between 25 and 30 would be considered overweight. So this was a very generous um, uh, in regards to, to weight. But, mm-hmm. but, um, but, you know, again, these are, these are simple behaviors that we can, we can all, I think, quite easily adopt. But I think we, particularly in this country, um, I, I think that we ha- there has to be a societal change. We need to change our perspective. You know, I, the, just the other day I went out to tea and, and, you know, in every restaurant, you know this, you have children, there's a kid's menu, right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and what's on the kid's menu? <laughs> so it's always the hamburger, the hot dog, the pizza, and the chicken nuggets, right? right. Yeah. 
I mean, you know, the most important time for us to, to develop good eating habits is when we're children. And it's so important that our children eat properly. And it's not acceptable for them to be eating these foods because this sets up where we are today. I totally agree. I'm sure you see this in your practice. There seems to be quite a disconnect between reality and and what patients um, practice. You know, they want oftentimes, can you give me just a pill to fix the stock? I'll work on my diet later. And what are your thoughts on that or approaching that with your patients? Right. Well, here's the thing. I have a very unique practice, uh, Mitchell. I, I don't I do not do any prescriptions. I, I strictly do lifestyle medicine. I I tell I, my role is not to be your general internist, and and I'm an infectious disease physician by training. I've practiced for almost 20 years in New York, and um, so what, I started this per- practice um, as uh, this was my passion for years, and this was something I wanted to do, and I started it a year ago. And my practice is simply about educating patients on how to eat properly. So patients will come into me. Um, And and they know right off the bat, I'm not going to write a prescription. I mean, that's not the type of medicine that I practice. What I do is I take a very thorough history and physical. And then I I just and and the first initial visit with me is two hours Mm -hmm. where we we talk about what what is the important, you know, what does an optimal nutrition plan look like? What is a physical activity regimen appropriate for that individual patient? And also managing stress because it's those three components that are, are very important in, in maintaining health and wellness. So I don't do that. And I make it clear to patients, um, I'm here to, and it's not about cosmesis. I'm not, it's not about, you know, fitting into a dress for mm-hmm. a particular uh, uh, party. It's about achieving, uh, you know, optimal uh, cholesterol, lipid profile, uh, blood, uh, blood glucose, uh, you know, blood pressure, all those things that are important clinical endpoints. Those are the things that I want to discuss. Pre-diabetic patients that come that come to see me, it's about assuring that they're eating properly uh, to get that glucose insulin access corrected, weight loss, and, and patients can reverse, you know, these pre-diabetic states. We, yeah, I, definitely. Another thing that we I see plenty of uh, 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 recently is fatty liver disease, particularly in young patients who are carrying too much weight, about 30%. Uh, of patients, uh, obese patients with fatty liver disease, which is a huge problem, which can turn into non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And, 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 you know, we've even seen in the literature patients developing cirrhosis from from excess fat. Really? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's going to be a huge problem as our our children become uh, more and more obese with the, uh, I guess, the dietary crisis, if you will, in our country. It's it's going to be a rampant problem. Um, I'm grateful that our First Lady has brought light to this. And I think um, this past year, I think for the first time in, you know, the NHANES data, we're looking at rates of obesity. I think we've peaked at a shade under 35%, and it, and it hasn't because for the past several years we've been climbing, and it seems like we sort of leveled off. And also I think we've seen some in, – in in, when you look at the uh, obesity rates in children, I think we've also seen some leveling off and, and also maybe some, some improvement over the past couple of years. So that's all promising data. Yeah, certainly encouraging. And so do you do any traditional medicine now, any hospital medicine? I don't do, I don't. I, I, for years I was practicing at the VA hospital uh, in New York um, and I gave that up about uh, almost a year and a half ago. Okay. Um, and I'm strictly doing this now it, uh and, and hoping that the practice continues to grow and the message is continues to, to be promoted. So did you get any uh, pushback or negative comments when you left? Uh, obviously, you're highly trained uh, with a subspecialty <laughs> fellowship, and you go from, you know, treating resistant infections to um, uh, pushing plants, if you will. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so 
many of my wonderful colleagues, um, you know, question, what, am, what are you doing and why have you done this? But it was, you know, it's been years that it's, it's sort of been um, on my mind, something that I really wanted to do. I'll tell you, in 2005 at the VA, so, you know, I'm practicing infectious diseases at the VA, and it's not a common consult that I would see would be, a, you know, an infected diabetic foot ulcer, right? right. So the, the question to me is, Dr. Stancic, what antibiotics should this patient be placed on? Um, but, you know, I would spend 10, 15 minutes on, you know, discussing what antibiotic and then I would spend the remainder of the of the time for the consultation talking to this patient about achieving, um, you know, a, 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 about changing their diet and, and promoting an, an exercise regimen. And in fact, you know, our uh, I was chief of infectious diseases at the Hudson Valley VA in New York, and we we have this beautiful campus right on the Hudson River. And at lunchtime, I would make all my patients walk <laughs> the campus, and it was wonderful. And in 2005, the VA employed a program called the Move Program, um, which was great. You know, again, uh, obesity and overweight big problem at the, in the VA. Definitely. And, and I and I volunteered for that. I said, you know, I want to I want to lead that at our at our. Our, at our facility. And so I started to do that program as well. And, and again, promoting, because I saw the difference in my life. I mean, I, here I, I had become, I, again, this is anecdotal, but I, I knew where, from where I had come and how how severely compromised my life had been to one that now, you know, I was thriving and, and energetic and, and certainly not feeling, you know, like a a, a compromised, fatigued MS patient. I felt comp- I felt like a new person, and it was a message I wanted to share with the world. And um, and you know, even in managing uh, um, you know infectious disease patients, HIV patients, and hepatitis patients, of course, when we address all of these parameters, lifestyle behaviors, whatever chronic illness you're 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 managing is going to be better. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the depressed patient that that, that decides, uh, you know. 75% of, of VA patients have a mental um, mental health diagnosis. If we, in, in those patients with diabetes or P, uh, rather with depression or PTSD, if we employ a regimen where they're eating better and they're exercising, that's going to have benefits to address uh, mental health uh, issues as well. So uh, this is something that, you know, everyone should partake in, and it's not anything specific to one individual or, or another. I mean, if we all did this, Whatever our baseline is, it's only going to improve. I would imagine that some of these patients were probably one of the first times that they were talked to about these things. I mean, you know, they've been dealing with obesity and and here where they have an infectious disease doctor talking to them about their diet. They were probably, you know, pleased with the information, but also a little bit surprised that nobody brought it up before. I think they were. I mean, you know, because these patients are coming from the general internist and they're coming to see me. But, you know, Mitchell, what would happen, and, and this is what I saw time and time again, right? I would have that infected diabetic foot ulcer come see me, antibiotic, uh, do, the patient doesn't respond. They end up with an amputation, right, first, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, below the knee and then an above the knee. And so what happens? Now this patient is a 55-year-old veteran amputated, right, now becomes even more sedentary than he was before. Uh, and he developed his diabetes is now more poorly controlled, develops cardiovascular disease, stroke. Next time I see him five years down the line, now he's in the in the uh, nursing home. He has Alzheimer's disease and they're calling me because he has, a, you know, a fully catheter and a urinary tract infection and, and, and he's 
and 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 you know he's spiking and and they want to know you know what do we do now right. and this is what would happens commonly you know this patients just spiral and what we need to do is that very veteran the one that came to see me with the infected foot ulcer we needed to a, a target that patient you know 10 years before when his blood glucose first started to you know, when we started to first see some glycemic abnormalities and correct course then. And that's what that's where the focus needs to at least that's my opinion, that we need to focus uh, in prevention more than I mean, we're very good at acute and chronic management of chronic illness. But right. the problem is the horse is already out of the gate at that point. Exactly. I'd like to see some education. You know, I've got a um, a 14-year-old son, and uh, we were visiting a friend at the hospital and saw that very patient you're talking about with the bilateral amputations. And uh, my son was like, well, I don't understand, you know, what does diabetes have to do with losing your legs? And, mm-hmm. and you know, and he had the questions of how do you get diabetes and what does diet have to do with it and all those things. And I just was kind of a little bit taken back that he hadn't had some some knowledge or some discussion in a health class along the way or some some um, nutrition advice or something that you know our kids really should be hearing from someone else besides their parents right it's it's just absent and i'm not sure why i mean even in our community we live in a lovely community and um in in northern New Jersey and you know you look at the the lunch menu at our at hmm. our school and again it's those same foods that we talked about previously um needless to say my children take their lunch to school <laughs> but you know it's it's really disappointing because you know, we should know better and um and we and we don't at this point I'm not really sure why you know we're not connecting uh, not too long I think last year I wrote a uh I sort my there's a, a a Burger King inside of the cafeteria in Mm -hmm. the hospital from which I, in the medical school, which I graduate, which has been driving me crazy for years. So I wrote a brief article on it and I I posted it on LinkedIn. I got a lot of comments and I would say, you know, 80 to 90% of them were really positive, but there was a group of folks that were really annoyed at me for even commenting on the fact that, you know, freedom, we should be able to choose whatever we want. And, And that's fine. But my concern is why is there a Burger King inside of the hospital? Inside of the tertiary care center, in in in, in within our facility, that do, what does that tell the the, the typical patient? Right. That, that this is acceptable. This is acceptable nutrition, and you could go there, Mitchell. Go to the cafeteria, and you see patients still with their patient, you know, t- you know, wristlets on, ordering Burger King, and even the <laughs> the cardiologist sitting there eating a Whopper. I mean, we yeah. we really need to set the example, particularly as physicians. We you know. Everything that I'm telling you to do is what I do on a daily basis. I run, I walk, I exercise every day. I eat this type of food because this is the type of food that keeps me well. And that's why I'm I'm recommending it to you. We yeah. need to live that example. Yeah, definitely. I, when I left the hospital the other day, I was walking out and there was a huge cooler sitting there that said free. And inside it was just packed full of uh, ice cream. And so, you know, I was unmonitored and patients and whoever walked by were grabbing handfuls of all sorts of ice cream bars and i like ice cream from time to time but i think it was sending the wrong message definitely right so, i like ice cream too from time to time <laughs> all right well i want to respect your time i just want to finish up with two questions here and so the first is can you just describe what your ideal day would be whether it's just practice or 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 not practice related just life in general oh boy um for me that would be a, a hike with my family definitely okay we, we're pretty outdoorsy and just being uh, 
outside and, and going for a really long hike. That 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 would, that's one of my favorite um, my favorite days. Absolutely. Yeah, I love definitely connecting with nature. And and you mentioned a little bit about stress management as one of the techniques that you work with your patients about. Can you just share a little bit about maybe your favorite stress management? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm a big fan of meditation, yoga, things like that. I'm I'm also one of the books that I I, I recommend highly for for patients is The New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of Tolle. Yeah. Um. I you know I I think I've re- I've read that book. Uh, I, I probably read it two two or three times a year and and listen to it often when I'm running or if I'm having a difficult day. Just listening to him um, re- reduces my stress levels. But I think it's it's constantly it's about you know assuring that you're living in the moment and not you know I think often it's about perspective. We we take small situations in our lives and we explode them and, and we take we take them to heart so heavily and mm-hmm. and we end up and, and we know that you know stress affects us biologically. We, we know that when we're highly stressed, you know, cortisol levels are increased and insulin levels are increased. And, you know, Elizabeth Blackburn has done a lot of work at UCSF with, with telomeres and, and she won the, I believe she won the Nobel Prize in 2009 for her work in telomeres. And we know that patients who are highly stressed or telomeres are, mm-hmm. are shortened. So there's a lot of, a lot of science out there that supports that, you know, being in a highly stressful environment creates illness. So, um, that's something that I point out to them. And, and you know, every patient is different. They, they may be very, whatever works for you, but finding that space where there's quiet, where you're away from the rat race, it's a very difficult time to be living nowadays. There's a lot of stress. You know, it's 24-7. Completely. Yeah. Social media, you know, it's tough being a kid nowadays. You know, everything's, um, there's really little privacy and there's a lot of exposure. So all of these um I think things add stress to to our to our lifestyles. So whatever we can do to just find those moments of of, of quiet, I think are important. Yeah, very very difficult for kids to unplug as well. But I definitely uh, yeah, Eckhart's message is powerful and his voice is very soothing, and uh, yes. I love that. So, uh, where can people find uh, more about you or your website or connect with you? Right. So my my website is uh, stancichealthandwellness.com and um, uh, my my practice is in Ridgewood, New Jersey, uh, and uh, I guess that's basically it. And I, you can reach me on on email at stanticmd at gmail dot com. I'm happy to hear from anyone. Excellent. And do you connect with patients just in the office, or do you do some uh, you know phone based consultations or, or internet I consultations? Do, I, yeah. Well. For, Primarily in the office, but I do phone-based consultations. I, we, I I email my patients. I text my patients whenever I can. How are you doing? You know, follow up. I do house calls. Um, I'll go to your house and and we can go through your kitchen and your cupboards and make sure that what you've got in there is in alignment. Nice. What what needs to be done? I'll, you know, I, I go food shopping with patients. Um, I prepare meals with patients. I, you know, one of the things that I want to do hopefully this year is start to do little short clips, uh, uh, just showing particularly busy moms how to prepare quick and healthy meals. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to go to the local Burger King or the local McDonald's um, to, when we're when we're really busy. We can create meals and even in advance create meals that are that are healthy and, and beneficial for your family. Excellent. I love you. Well, thank you so much for your time and have a fantastic day. You too, Mitchell. Thank you so much. 
I hope you found some value in that. Apologize for the medical jargon. Let me know if you have any questions. I had the privilege of hearing Dr. Terry Wall speak last week at the World Congress of Anti-Aging Medicine, and she has a very similar story, how she went from debilitated in a wheelchair back to full, vigorous life, practicing, teaching, traveling the world, and just a fantastic, interesting story. If you haven't heard of her before, check out Dr. Terry Walls, W-A-H-L-S. As always, have a fantastic week. Be safe, be well. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. If you found value in this episode and the show, please share a review on iTunes as it really helps the show get discovered. Please share your biggest takeaway. And as always, I want to help you answer the burning questions in your mind. So reach out to me at MitchellMD.com or on social media, wherever you hang out. Make today incredible, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Recharge Podcast.